Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Why you look at pictures? She a girlfriend? No, but she's someone I'd like to find again. Why? Crazy mad for her? She was dear, sweet, and innocent. That's not me. I'm just one chai girl. What a nice girl you meet on ferry doing in a place like this, I'd like to know, for goodness sake. So would I. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. What's up? Oh, you know. Just doing an episode of Cinema 60. That's cinema-60.com. What a podcast. It's Cinema 60 time. <laughs> you wrote that theme song for us last time. I thought I'd use it. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm, gl- I'm glad I had the foresight to do that because today I'm very excited to do an episode about an actress who I've been wanting to talk about on Cinema 60 for a long time, actually. This is something that we've had in our Google spreadsheet of episode ideas for a while, and it is finally time. She did come up briefly when we were talking about Matt Helm, but not enough to count. Her name is Nancy Kwan, and I wanted to talk about Nancy Kwan because, in part, I wanted to see all of her 60s movies because I really don't know. I know the you know, it's like I know her name, And I know the two movies that she's famous for in the 60s, but I had not really seen much of her otherwise. And so I was curious about that. But more importantly, I was really curious to look at a non-white leading lady from the 60s. What a rarity. (laughs) Yeah, not many of those. Yeah, and I mean, and across all of Hollywood, the only person I can think of who was also famous as an Asian leading actress is Anna Mae Wong, and she was big in what, the 20s, the 30s? And, you know, mm-hmm. really wasn't until the 1960s that Nancy Kwan showed up that we had another star with a sort of name recognition of Asian descent. I mean, we had France Noyen, who was dating Marlon Brando and was supposed to be in Susie Wong, and she seemed like she was going places and never did. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, not that there wasn't other people around that were deserving or... But the the name recognition level of stardom that Nancy received, I think, unmatched, or at least very rare. And it's honestly still pretty rare, which is a bummer, but we'll get to that. So to start off this episode, I feel the need to establish uh, some terms and, and understanding of social context in America in the 1960s in order to really just set the stage of, of the films that we're watching and then get into what we normally do, uh, talk about individual movies. However, as we mentioned at the beginning of our Black Masculinity episode, Bart and I can't actually give you the full context of a lot of this because our ability to know the nuances of being Chinese American or Asian American is uh no and I'm not going to pretend and I don't know it and I'm not going to know it and that's it the end but what we can do and what we're what we will do throughout this episode is to you know provide context and insights from Nancy Kwan herself that I've mined from books and interviews that I've read and watched And I also want to try and look critically at what it seems these films were setting out to do versus how they were interpreted on whole by their largely white audiences. It's a complex situation, to say the least, that we're admittedly not fully equipped to tackle the entirety of. But hopefully we can, at bare minimum, 
kind of whet your appetite to being interested in seeking out more actual Asian American voices on the subject to educate yourself fully on Asian representation in Western cinema, because it's totally fascinating and deserves a critical look. So right off the bat, I think it's important to establish a few key concepts here. So let's define stereotypes real quick. Scholar Homi K. Babha, who is well known as a cultural theorist on post-colonial criticism, he wrote this essay called The Other Question, where he defines stereotyping as, quote, knowledge and identification that vacillates between what is always already known and something that's repeated. So the idea of repetition, I think, is an important concept to put your bookmark in, first off, because then we have Orientalism, which is centuries-old concept that I'll define here as basically taking anything east of Moscow and tossing it in a blender and saying, that seems right. <laughs> Isn't that pretty? Uh, you know, and, and so Orientalism was definitely having a resurgence in popular culture in the 1960s, what with post-World War II anti-Japanese sentiments that was replacing the anti-Chinese American sentiment and then rolling it all up in the Korean War, the Vietnamese War, and you've got yourself some angry, confused, white gaze desperation <laughs> uh, that, that just wants to write off an entire side of the globe as as them, right, as those people. So on top of that, too, towards the middle and the end of the 60s is when you start to see this whole model minority myth coming up within the U.S. as part of a contrast to the black power movement, which was, you know, ooh, scary, right, for white people. And why can't you be like those nice others that we can't be bothered to speak directly to outside of your restaurants that we like to dismiss as greasy or bad for you, even though we go ritually every week and it's been a staple of American cuisine for like over a century, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Because white people, hashtag. So here's the thing about both of those link concepts and movies. Movies being a reflection of contemporary culture and at the same time movies being a business because movies are always straddling those two worlds of artistic expression and then also making investors money back, right? And the most surefire way to guarantee your money back is to cater to popular tastes. And in the 1930s, that meant, say, casting Louise Rayner as the lead in the movie adaptation of The Good Earth, even though Anna Mae Wong was an established film actress. The white lady had more box office draw and in the end won out because <laughs> we can always use yellow face. So who cares, right? which was something that Anna Mae Wong was pretty openly upset about, rightfully. So I think the nature of movies being still to this day a frustratingly white industry, it's always going to be a slower road to progress when you're being propped up by nervous investors and audiences that appreciate being comforted more than being challenged, and specifically white audiences. And also the nature of white people being the majority in the nation at the time in the 60s, you know, fearful and lacking basic exposure of anything outside of their white middle American sphere. So it kind of becomes this like chicken and egg scenario or even like Ouroboros scenario where movies are reflecting the white bias and feeding it back into society and then pretending that that proves in some way that this is the only way. So, you know, there's your repetition. Then it gets to the point where if all you serve up is shit, that's all people are going to request. 
So that's some partial information there for you to do with what you wish. I think I just want to put a slightly positive spin on what you're saying by suggesting that between World War II and the Korean War, we had a lot of Americans overseas who were you know, seeing Asia and probably, you know, bringing stories of what they saw there back to their families. So I think it's sort of great that there is this minor spike of interest in Asia, another culture that, uh, you know, seemingly was exciting to Americans because it, it seems so different. It's nice, at least at the beginning of the 60s, to see some genuine interest in Asian cultures on the part of American audiences. And uh, Nancy Kwan definitely seems like she was writing that a bit. Like She probably would not have been able to have the career she did such as it was if it weren't for this renewed interest in what was happening in the East. But unfortunately, it didn't seem to last that long. It didn't last too far past the early 60s and, and definitely didn't seem to last uh, into our entry into the Vietnam War. For sure. And I think even though that interest of coming as somebody, you know, through a war to another country, clearly these are people coming in with a very Western perspective. You're not even a tourist at that point. You know, you're like basically a colonizer. There is this weird tightrope walk of being genuinely interested in a culture and also having such a narrow understanding of it or experience with it that then you're trying to sort of apply to an entire side of a globe. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not even just like, well, when I was in China that one time in this one village, like, no, it be, just becomes China. Then it becomes the Orient or whatever they want to call it. But yeah, there's no way around it. You know, this is this is 100% what was happening in the 60s and how, you know, unfortunately, in order for them to produce anything that was about China, it sort of came through that lens. So it just sort of is what it is. But moving moving on. <laughs> and again, please, you know, there's, there's so much more involved in how to interpret and understand this stuff that we're not the right people to talk to you about it. So please make an effort. There's maybe we'll put on the website a couple of links of things that are worthwhile checking out. But for now, let's shift gears and just go to an entirely different country and back into Hong Kong, which we've touched upon in the podcast. And let's get to Nancy Kwan, because she was born in Hong Kong to a Chinese architect father and a white English Scottish mother who was a model And her parents divorced pretty early on, and Quan and her brother stayed with her father in China. And there was some brief World War II drama where her family had to hide out in mainland China for a couple of years. But for the most part, she seemed to have a fairly happy upbringing, a pretty affluent family. She went to a convent for schooling and eventually to a British boarding school. And eventually she studied as a ballet dancer at the Royal Ballet School of London. Her film career actually started almost by accident because when she was 18, she went back home to Hong Kong for the summer and her father had designed a studio that I think her her uncle owned. But anyhow, they were using the studio to audition actresses for the film adaptation of The World of Suzy Wong, which had been a popular stage play starring France Nguyen based on a novel And Nancy Kwan was watching from the sidelines when a guy came up to her and was like, hey, do you want to do a screen test? 
And she didn't really know what that was, but said sure. And so she auditioned and, and did the screen test where she said she was sort of giggling through the whole thing because she just was completely unprepared for it. And like a month later, she got this letter in the mail offering to put her on contract and send her to Hollywood to take a couple of weeks of acting classes and then to do another screen test for this movie again. And she had never been to America, and that's a pretty exciting letter to get. So she was like, hell yeah. <laughs> Eventually what happened was, after going to Hollywood and going through all of this, they declined her for the role in Suzy Wong because of her inexperience. But they offered her an understudy role for the Broadway play, and they were like, we'll find you a different movie, but let's just get you more experience. And the role went to Franz Nian, who was hired as Susie. But a month or so into shooting the film, apparently France had, it's like one of these horrible 1960s movie stories that uh, maybe it's not even 1960s, this happens probably still today, but <laughs> like a month into shooting, they had shot all the exteriors and they got France on set and she had gained weight because she was dating Brando at the time and they were going through this difficult breakup. So studios being as evil as they are, they straight up fired her because she couldn't fit into these like super form fitting costumes apparently and then they just brought in nancy kwan they were like she's cute bring her in <laughs> and she didn't even realize that she was cast until they were like do you want to go to china and shoot some more screen tests with william holden and she was like hell yeah <laughs> so now suddenly we're at the world of Susie wong which came out in 1960 launched Nancy Kwan's career and was a very well-received, very popular film directed by Richard Quine. The guy who convinced her to do the screen test, Ray Stark, a sort of big name in uh, independent productions, would you know, sort of work outside the, the studio system and get the studios to distribute films that he was producing. He seems to have kind of a major role in her whole career throughout the 60s. And I was wondering if you found any information on him. I mean, he started Seven Arts Productions, which you know they produced about half of these movies that we watched for this episode. I couldn't find a lot of information on the role that he played in her career in general, but it seems like his name and his production company keep coming up over and over again. I did not find too much specific about him. I mean, in all of the times that she tells the story, she didn't know who he was. So I think she sort of leaves it at that. But later on, she talks about Richard Quine was a huge influence. William Holden and then Stark, I think, were the, the three people that helped nurture her career along the most. Because she basically got trial by fire. She got thrown into this and they basically all just would not let her fail, essentially. And I mean, I think, you know, it's it's watching a world of Suzy Wong, it's I think there is a clear natural talent that she has. So I don't, you know, she, she gives them a lot of credit. I don't know how much credit we can give them, but, but she does. So, well, maybe I was making more of Ray Stark's presence than I should have. I was trying to dig up some dirt and couldn't find any, Thought maybe you had some for me. I don't have much dirt in general. Yeah. She was brought up in a convent, which kind of explains why she tends to play nice girls. And when she is a little, uh, 
you know, free-spirited and sexy. It doesn't seem like her natural personality, but she does end up being kind of exoticized and sexualized in a lot of these movies. So let's talk about them. Let's talk about the world of Susie Wong. So the world of Susie Wong, I think in a lot of ways, this is your sort of classic 1960s role for uh, anyone Asian. Because they, even though this movie takes place in China, you know, they were already going to cast a Vietnamese lady to be the lead. And I think that there's in general a lot of this sort of interchangeableness, which comes out of that white gaze. It comes out of this idea of like, well, when I was there in war, what what did I see? You know, <laughs> oh, the whorehouses. Cool. So the world of Susie Wong, the plot of this movie is that William Holden quits his job as an architect. His name is Robert Lomax. And he moves to China. He gives himself one year. He moves to Hong Kong specifically. He gives himself one year to become an artist with China as his inspiration. And he moves into this kind of rundown, crummy hotel that at the bottom uh, of this hotel, there is a bar where a lot of sailors come and a lot of Chinese hookers hang out. And it's like kind of a sex hotel, but not officially because that's illegal but it's basically just a cheap, crappy hotel. And he I don't think he re- doesn't really realize it until he gets there, but then he kind of deals with it. And so the, the film ends up being about Susie Wong, who is one of these you know working women at the bar, trying to get William Holden to hire her. And then when that doesn't work, he sort of says, well, I'll paint you. Like, you can come up to my room and pose, which, of course she doesn't understand you know why don't you want to you want me to take my clothes off kind of like your typical good girl who does bad things hook her with a heart of gold kind of (laughs) stereotype and she of course puts on this very strong accent with broken english as she's talking and it's definitely like a the beginning of a solidification of a stereotype in this film that you then see throughout films coming after but you know, and of course they fall in love, right? Like that's the whole point. And she has a secret life that people don't know where she lives. And so she has something, a secret that everyone's trying to figure out, which eventually he stumbles onto the fact that she has a baby son that she doesn't really know what to do with. But at this point he loves her because she's been his muse and she takes him around places and he's painted all these beautiful pictures of her and there's these white British people that also are trying to help him the father's a banker and then his daughter is interested in getting with William Holden and also helping his career along but they're very much have that colonial attitude of like them and us and Holden is much more open to the idea that (laughs) Chinese people are people and uh, in the context of the film He's the upright liberal <laughs> in the scenario with the British people representing racist, but they don't. They of course are, are afraid to say they're racist because that's wrong, but they won't mix. So it's like that kind of dynamic. How did you feel about this movie, Bart? I've seen it a couple times, and the first time I saw it, I guess it made an impression, but I didn't like it. I mean, I was kind of struck by the racist stereotypes and melodrama of it all that seemed to, you know, not present the realities of life in Hong Kong very well. But I don't know, the second time around, I found myself kind of getting involved in it. Focusing on Nancy Kwan was a lot of that because she really 
does have a lot of natural star power and she makes this movie what it is. You know, even though she's just playing the hooker with the heart of gold, she still brings enough personality to the role. And I think I just got more sucked into the melodrama this time around and liked it. And what I really appreciated about the movie is how much it does love Chinese culture. I'm just showing you this one aspect of sex workers in Hong Kong, but it still loves just showing you the streets and the junks and the water and the ferry and just loves Hong Kong. More of this movie is shot in the studio than I realized, but when it does show you actual location shots in Hong Kong, it was just a lot of fascination with the culture and the, you know, the everyday people on the street and just what life is like there. That hooked me for sure. And it's clearly on the side of the American, William Holden, who thinks that, yeah, Chinese people are just like white people. Why should there be a problem that I want to marry this person? And so we're talking 1960s. So this championing of mixed race relationships struck me more this time that such a popular movie could have this liberal agenda. So it kind of made me forgive a lot of the more stereotypical portrayals or stereotypical ideas about Chinese culture that show up in the movie. I'm totally with you on the fact that I think this movie does love China. The shots on location are really cool. They're extremely cool. (laughs) And it's a really good mix of like high and low income areas. And you get to see like all of the floating restaurants, the stuff on boats in general is just really amazing. It looks like that kind of National Geographic type footage, you know, which would be the 1960s reference. But it's all being filtered through this white lens. So it's like it's not a full picture of anything. But I agree that the its heart is in the right place for that. Whether or not that's worth anything, of course, is like a whole other discussion. I also agree that Susie Wong is a really interesting character that unfortunately became this archetype in herself. And, you know, it wasn't like the, the dragon lady archetype was, you know, the sort of anime Wong roles that she ended up getting. And there were like the noble peasant roles or even like the geisha girl roles, which was about being like subservient and passive. But Susie Wong kind of takes that and twists it because she isn't subservient and she isn't passive. She's a sort of fireball of a, of a character that if this was a movie that took place in Italy, would, <laughs> would people have walked away and thought like, oh, all Italian women are like this or whatever the hell. You know, it's hard to talk about not so much because the movie is pure evil, but just because there really wasn't anything else that you can compare it to. So if the only offer is Susie Wong, then unfortunately the audiences walk away with that and they think, oh, like Chinese women love to be hit. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, this movie is definitely not feminist. You know, I think Susie Wong's an interesting character, but the whole part of this film is this idea where she says, you know, she's bragging to her other girlfriends, like he hits me. And they're like, wow, you have one who hits you. Oh, you, you know, it's the, he must, he's so jealous and he hits me and that's because he loves me so much. And it sort of plays off as like, this is like what Chinese women are into just because this is like the only representation that we get in the whole film. There's no other Chinese women that are there even to say, that's questionable like there's no one else we only get this one type of woman in this and you know she has her own sense of self she stands up for herself she is trying to do best by herself 
but is it a great model? No. But I kind of think that Nancy Kwan, from, you know, what she's said about the role, Nancy Kwan herself never really thought of it as being representational of all of China, you know, which was maybe even, I don't know, it's maybe even slightly naive of her, but also like, I don't see why, why would she, as someone who came from China, ever think that? (laughs) Whereas like white Americans look at this and they're like, oh yeah, like, of course, all of China. Well, Susie Wong is so, the character is so different than who she was herself that of course she would think, my life is nothing like this. Why would anyone think that this is what all Chinese women have to go through? And she felt that she was being truthful to the character throughout multiple interviews over the years. She still doesn't really understand why people are upset about this. She doesn't really like to hear about disparaging remarks about the movie, which I understand too, as far as like, this was the movie that completely launched her career. So it's, I think it's hard for her to be critical about it anyhow. And again, I mean, you know, watching this movie, there is quite a bit that is sympathetic and and empathetic and especially towards her holden comes across as being this kind of brute in a lot of ways plus i think his art kind of (laughs) sucks it's like this really kitsch (laughs) it's like really kitschy like it's really cheesy it's like that kind of like someone who's talented but the subject matter is so like hallmark card sentimental interpretation of china here you know and he's sort of more struggling with how to deal with the white british people so there's two, at least two versions of white people in this movie is the type that says like, actually, Chinese people are people. And then the British people that say they're people on their side of the fence, you know, so like there's at least more variation there than there is for the Chinese characters in this. There's also I mean, besides just William Holden's character trying to humanize Chinese people in this British colony that thinks of them as uh, less than. He humanizes sex workers, too, which I think is interesting. And they're, they're sort of two different things that come together. It's two different ideas that this movie is working with. And I think that they sort of get combined in people's heads about this movie. You know, I, I think it's two different liberal impulses. Chinese people are human. Sex workers are human. But it, in people's heads, they think, oh, all Chinese people are sex workers. But I think there is this liberal idea behind the whole thing that is worthy of taking note of. I mean, I think any steps in a positive direction that way is good. Always when you start to introduce more liberal ideas to society, it's going to start in this place of ignorance. And I guess you just have to accept that. I'd prefer to focus on the positives, this idea that American mainstream, predominantly white culture has decided that it's interested in this world. Chinese culture are are willing to accept a Chinese woman as the lead character in a major motion picture. And I think you have to put that as much in the context of the times as the stereotypes and the ignorance that's being shown on the film as well. That sort of leads me to forgive the world of Suzy Wong a little bit more than maybe I should. I mean, yeah, it's, it's worth something. I don't know how much. Like, I agree with you. It's great that this interest was being shown. But if this had been the beginning of something that then turned into multiple dips into China as a country, multiple stories coming out that were not just about hookers, (laughs) like, then it would have been worth a lot more. But Hollywood and white people, (laughs) we, I'm I'm not Hollywood, but um, there's this, like, tendency to neuter itself. Yeah. And the thing that I think that was pretty neat about this movie 
though it has this really awful ending. <laughs> it has this really <laughs> brutal ending that uh, it feels unnecessary as far as the storytelling goes, other than to wrap everything up with a nice little bow for him. And that's kind of my problem with this movie is it's just more that it continually brings the focus back to Holden where Susie is easily the more interesting character and in a lot of ways kind of wins out as far as lifestyle goes. Because as you said, yeah, like he sort of accepts that she's a prostitute. He tries to take her out of it financially and with love. You know, she has a practical nature about that where, you know, that only works for so long. And if he isn't going to really solidify this and make it official then you know she's out like she doesn't she can't waste her time with it so in the end there is this sort of acceptance of her and of china he doesn't talk about and now we're going to go back to the u.s and i'm gonna clean you up in fact there's a scene where she shows up dressed in this really like contemporary 60s dress it's like this wiggle dress with blue flowers on it and it's white and she has this whole like western get up on and he's disgusted. <laughs> yeah, he's disgusted. And of course, he has to rip her clothing off in order to show her that and sit there and tell her she looks ugly and awful. So he still sort of wants her in this oriental quote unquote role because that's how he's seeing her and accepting her. So like that's buying back into these stereotypes of white gaze. But in the end, again, it's like he does kind of want to conform to her life. And it's an interesting message, whether or not it's worthy of congratulations and praise like I don't know I mean like it's worthy of note at least for the fact that again we don't really have that much else to, to compare it to as far as lead roles for Asian women in the 60s I mean this is kind of it so I thought this was an interesting movie and you know Nancy Kwan's really great in it she really is I think that she's really sweet and genuine the dialogue is <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. movie is, but the heart of her character is not playing into a stereotype. She's really genuinely playing one character. And I think that that comes across very clearly. It's almost baffling to watch this in a current day and then see how people came away with this thinking anything other than that. But I guess if this is your only exposure to it, then humans are stupid. <laughs> Yeah, and I can see why Nancy Kwan would have been proud of what she accomplished with this film. I mean, I didn't watch the interviews that you did, but she may be blind to how, after this sort of peak at the beginning of the 60s, this didn't mark a real change in white Americans' attitudes towards Asian Americans. But I think she should be proud of the two-year blip where there was this uh, interest on the part of white America Chinese culture. I guess I'm hoping you can open my eyes a bit to how Nancy herself feels about the trajectory of her career. Well, you know, I mean, 1960, it was great. She quickly became this major sex symbol. <laughs> she was called the Chinese Bardot, and she was basically the biggest Asian movie star who was also accepted as being an American star, even though she really spent most of her life in Hong Kong and her mother was British anyhow. So she calls herself Eurasian, but you know, she moved to America and, and is American, but yeah, I mean like this was it for her. I mean like this completely launched her career and it brought us right into the next movie that I think is also really worthy of note. And also of course has been called problematic as well but that's Flower Drum Song from 1961. And those who say they don't agree 
by Henry Coster. Of all the films that we watched for this episode, Flower Drum Song is the most worthy, the best film, and it still has you know, some problematic stereotypes, but it is such a celebration of Chinese-American culture. It's based on a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical from a few years before, which was based on a novel by a Chinese-American. I'd never seen it before this. I think I knew the song I Enjoy Being a Girl, and that was the only song from this show that I knew beforehand. And I mean, I have to say I'm not the biggest Rodgers and Hammerstein fan. I don't like their music much, and that always colors my feeling about the movies made from their shows. Uh, I mean, I, I love Rodgers and Hart, but Hammerstein, for whatever reason, throw him in the mix, and <laughs> Rodgers doesn't know what to do with his uh, librettos or, or something. So I wasn't that impressed with the music in this film, but the story itself is really pretty fascinating. It's about a father and daughter who stow away in a crate on a ship from China and arrive in, in San Francisco so that the daughter can marry the man that she's been promised to. She's, you know, there's been an arranged marriage. Uh, so when they arrive in San Francisco and, and seek out Sammy Fong, who she's supposed to marry, turns out he's a nightclub owner, this you know, super Americanized guy. It, it's Jack Sue from Barney Miller, and he's such a perfect embodiment of, you know, an Asian American playing a rat pack guy. He totally has the Frank Sinatra patter down perfectly. He's a pretty entertaining part of this movie, but he's been dating one of his dancing girls in his club, Linda, played by Nancy Kwan. And they've been engaged for a long time and he just keeps putting off marrying her, but he's not going to dump her for Mei Li, his arranged bride who uh, has shown up to marry him. So he tries to pawn her off on another Chinese-American family that he knows they have a son who's looking to get married. So uh, Mei Li and her father end up staying with the Wangs so that Ta, the older son, played by James Shigeta, he's very Americanized himself and is not interested in arranged marriage, but his father is still invested in the old ways of China. So it's decided that she and her father will stay there and Mei Li and Ta will fall in love naturally. I mean, this is a very complicated plot. I could go through all the ins and outs, but Ta is dating Linda, Nancy Kwan's character, and, and Linda is trying to make Sammy jealous by dating Ta so that he will marry her. And it's all this comedy of marriage. Like everybody wants somebody who doesn't want them back. And it's a whole, you know, this group of Chinese Americans who are all sort of swapping partners in a, in a very non-sexual way. This is all very much about marriage and who's going to end up with whom at the end. But it's, it's really a, a fascinating look at Chinese Americans and how, at least in this time, in, in Chinatown in San Francisco, still have sort of one foot in the ways of the old country, but another foot in just being regular Americans. And it's a lot of fun to watch. Nancy Kwan is fun as Linda, who's not really the main character. Mei Li, I would say, the daughter who stowed away, is probably the character we're most focused on, her and Ta. 
but Linda makes a strong impression. She's the one who sings I Enjoy Being a Girl. And I mean, uh, her, her voice is dubbed by somebody else, but she does her own dancing and she does quite a bit of it. And anytime you get to see Nancy Kwan dance, you're in for a treat. She's got one dance number in Susie Wong, which I think is responsible for her being referred to as the Chinese Bardot. It's kind of sexy bar room dance she does. She gets to do a lot more dancing in Flower Drum Song, and she's great. Like, obviously, a very skilled, trained dancer. The movie is worth watching for that alone, but I think just this glimpse into Chinese-American culture is great and makes me forgive the, the less-than-stellar music that Rodgers and Hammerstein put in this show. You reminded me, I forgot to mention that the about the Chang Sam, which is that form-fitting Chinese dress that she wears in Suzy Wong and how that became like fashion wildfire. <laughs> All right, they'll, they'll slit up the leg so that when you're, you're dancing, yeah. it exposes your full leg. That form-fitting silk dress that's modest on top and party down below. <laughs> yeah, no, Flower Drum Song, <laughs> it's really funny to watch these dated older movies as they are for a lot of the things that we've watched for cinema 60, the, the vast majority of things that we've watched for cinema 60, because it's really fun to see how radical they are in their weird backwards way. Like <laughs> flower drum song. This is like the first movie that had pretty much an entirely Asian cast, except for Juanita Hall, who of course <laughs> Western cinema calls, participation trophy Asian or something just because she was in South Pacific. <laughs> but how often have we even seen this since 1961? I mean, we had Crazy Rich Asians, which apparently actually was written by the cousin of Nancy Kwan. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't know that. I didn't know that either until recently. So it's just funny. But, you know, it happens so rarely and it's just so fun and it's so nice to see this whole cast of really interesting actors that you don't typically get to see in leading roles have an entire musical about them. The problem with this is that that said, the fact that you have this in this almost entirely Asian cast telling the story of a truly Asian American experience in San Francisco, but this relies too hard on stereotypes and it's a huge bummer because they could have leaned just harder into the character. Like, there's no need for them to have relied on stereotypes. Like, there was plenty of material to work with, even if they wanted to start with the root of a stereotype. But we don't really learn enough about anyone here to really get emotionally invested in this. At least I wasn't. I liked to see it. I wanted to see the ending. I enjoyed watching it. But I didn't feel any of the romances. I think there's, like, a kind of twofold thing to that, is, like, on one hand, it's a musical. <laughs> You know, I mean, like all musicals are stereotypes. I mean, if we wanted to base our understanding of any culture off of a musical, we'll be screwed <laughs> <laughs> across the board. There's just no possible way. But on the other hand, say Guys and Dolls, which is a musical that I love. There's a whole element of that within Flower Drum Song, especially with Jack So and Nancy Kwan. It's the cabaret woman who wants to get married and the rat gambler who doesn't have time for that kind of stuff and doesn't feel that he's worthy and doesn't want to ruin his life quote unquote by getting married and settling down so like that gets across in guys and dolls but they also have a lot more space and time to really like 
deal with the dynamics of that. They have a couple of songs that are based really specifically on that topic and on the stress of that for both of the characters. Whereas Flower Drum Song, the, the songs are not bad, but they focus more on like brassy presentations and less on emotion. Like I Enjoy Being a Girl is really the most that we get to know about Linda Lowe, which is why it's kind of the best song in the entire movie, even though it's completely <laughs> ridiculous. I hate that song. Dopey, dopey song. <laughs> but at the same time, I want to say this is like this sort of anti-feminist reinforcement of the female gender stereotypes of the time, which it 100% is. But at the same time, how often do we really get songs about women celebrating their femininity? Like how often do we get to see a woman singing a love song to herself in the mirror. That's such a great concept. Mm. And Nancy Kwan is so charming, even though it's very clear that she's being dubbed. She's giving it her all. Like, she's really cute. She wears great outfits. Like, it's just fun to watch. So it is weirdly interesting. Like, I can't call it radical because it's not. It's super conservative. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, as a musical, I think there is, you know, there's a lot of songs about Chinatown and there's a lot of like, spectacle songs and there's less introspective songs and that to me is the biggest issue as far as it just being a musical but yeah then you have these stereotypes you have Mei Lee who's played by uh, you know very clearly from her accent even uh, Japanese actress uh, Miyoshi Umeki and she's very she feels very arm's length and she feels very foreign she's cute like you don't want bad things to happen to her and you care about her in that sense when she feels rejected by James Shigeta also Japanese you feel for her but it didn't build any like really strong sense of romance to me because really when we hear her sing she's singing made up interpret like not even really based on on anything interpretation of an old country song this her flower drum song you know when she's singing that it's like this sort of airy I don't know it's like spiritual more than it is about her it lacks a connection in that way but all of that said like you know there's so much else that's really cool to see here which is that focusing on Chinatown and focusing on different types of Chinese people at least bare minimum even though a lot of them are based on stereotypes at least you have a variety (laughs) I was just going to say that the one romance in this movie that I actually believed was Ta's childhood friend, Helen, who has just been in love with him all her life. And you think, oh, here are two Chinese Americans who would make a great couple. And when she confesses her love for him and he turns her down, that's the end of her character. And it's kind of a shame because it is the one actually romantic thing in this film that's ostensibly a romantic musical but she gets pushed aside for this admittedly more interesting examination of trying to reconcile the Chinese method of marriage with the American method of marriage and that works because of the fact that we get her bizarre fantasy dance sequence (laughs) in which she's like dancing out all of her feelings which We got to talk about this real quick because it was the absolute most batshit part of this musical (laughs) that like I really did not under I had no idea what was happening, but it did reinforce the fact that she actually really cares about this person, which I agree with you made for the most romantic section of of a musical that otherwise was sort of a little bit lacking in that. But 
what was happening in that dance sequence? There's like dancing mannequins. There's like guys in masks. There's like islands and rocks. It, it's like a total fever dream. Yeah. I mean, it's set up like a ballet. Like it is basically a ballet dance, but it's so bizarre. She's a tailor. So I guess that's what the mannequins are. And, and uh, you know, you've got ties, like these various mannequins. But yeah, it's strange and great. You know, Reiko Sato, I don't know anything about her, but she clearly is a dancer. And she was good in this movie. Her dance sequence is definitely the most memorable in there. But then her character just gets dropped completely. The choreographer for this movie was Hermes Pan, who was Fred Astaire's collaborator. And you can kind of tell. <laughs> There's something like a little bit old fashioned about a lot of the dance numbers, I thought. Yeah. And just to have that like bizarre fantasy, it reminded me of that one bizarre Sid Charisse Gene Kelly number from Singing in the Rain. That <laughs> also just sim like it's just like they stopped the whole movie to like have this symbolic, metaphoric dance number that like kind of doesn't <laughs> make any sense <laughs> but it's like really fun and, and great to watch like that was kind of what was happening in flower drum song but yeah i mean and then the ending of course of this movie <laughs> i don't think we can repeat on this podcast <laughs> as to the reason why a certain marriage does and doesn't happen let's just say it involves a derogatory name for Latin Americans who have crossed into America illegally. That's the climax of this film. But I will say that it's interesting, though, to sort of hear Nancy Kwan's thoughts on this movie, because the book for Flower Drum Song was written by a Chinese American. It was written by C.Y. Lee, and the script's based on his book. And she was friendly with C.Y. Lee. And there was an interview with her in Shondaland where she was saying specifically, like, people always criticize this, but she doesn't really understand it. And how it's Rodgers and Hammerstein. And she says, quote, that's how they wrote in those days. And the music sold very well. And they were both geniuses. And we were lucky to work with some of the talented people that we did. And she says, too, that it's a quote, it's a light, fluffy film. It's not drama. It's not something deep that you have to put your mind and thoughts into. It's just something very entertaining and enjoyable. And I remember I was home in Hong Kong when it opened there, and I had a chance to go to the theater and see how the Hong Kong Chinese audience felt about the film, and they loved it. So it wasn't only just for Asian Americans. Other people got a chance to see how Chinese families respect their children and how the children should respect their elders. A lot of traditions were in there, and it didn't hit you on the head. It wasn't one of those overly serious films. So I think, again, with a lot of Nancy Kwan's sort of responses to her own films, I don't think she's wrong. I mean, like, you know, if you want to look at this in a void, it, like, I agree with her completely, actually. It's, again, it's a musical. It would not get anything from a musical at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's musicals only lead you down the wrong path. And I say this as someone who loves musicals, but they will only ruin your life if you try and take them seriously. At the same time, I think it's impossible to really look at this the way that she does, ignoring the political implications and ignoring the white audience response to this. And, you know, again, that repetition, reinforcing of the way that there are certain types of Asian Americans, even if it's a positive thing, again, if it kind of buys into that model minority myth, it still ends up being a damaging thing. And it's something that people on the street have to deal with. And that's the worst aspect of this. It's the audience misinterpretation of it. I thought one of the coolest parts of Flower Drum Song was the younger brother. He was a great dancer. Yeah. What's the actor's name? Patrick Adart? Maybe I'm saying his last name wrong. I apologize. He was really great in this. Like, because he is like the pure American 
kid, like has absolutely no care to any of this, loves baseball, loves messing around. And all of the younger siblings, I thought like they were just really fun characters. And I would have loved to have seen them do more because whenever they had dance numbers and whenever they had solos where they're just enjoying rock and roll or like shooting slang at their parents that have absolutely no idea what they're talking about like that stuff was just like universally fun <laughs> you know and it, I think that was actually probably the coolest part of this as far as defying stereotypes but even that of course is buying into its own version of what makes American American and having an accent doesn't mean you're not American so it is what it is but I don't know I liked Flower Drum Song in the end I liked it but I think the fact that it's a musical to me gave more of that layer of you know as Nancy Kwan said that kind of fluffy layer of unreality and so there is a lot that I can personally dismiss as being acceptable just because it's a musical but it's not the full story at least it was fun seeing a young James Hong in this, who clearly was never young. He has a small role as a waiter in Sammy's Club. And if you don't know James Hong, you do, because he's the old Chinese man in every movie you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. I think he's still alive and working, but you know this guy. And this had to have been one of his first movies, and he already looks 50. So this guy was never young. I have a quote from James Hong about this movie, which came from a documentary called Hollywood Chinese, which was a pretty interesting documentary. James Hong says, you know, in talking about sort of wrestling with the legacy of Flower Drum Song, he says, quote, we should have progressed past Flower Drum Song. Why aren't there more films out there that are Academy Award film winners? That's what I'm angry at. Basically that like we had a chance to progress because Flower Drum Song was a hit. All of these things were hits, but then we stopped there. You know what I mean? So it's hard to look at these movies and congratulate them and then walk away because at the end of the day, as James Hong pointed out, they had this hit on their hands and then there were no other chances after that. And that was his gripe with it. And that's, I think, pretty understandable and fair that if any other musical, any other white cast had the sort of star power that Nancy Kwan had in this, especially, they would have gone on to an illustrious career, and, and a lot of them did. Whereas after Flower Drum Song, like what? You know, and as we get through these other Nancy Kwan movies, it really drops off. And part of how we chose movies for this episode was that we were trying to focus for discussions, we were going to focus on the movies that had Nancy Kwan as a lead, as opposed to, because she has a bunch of bit parts in movies, which Bart's going to go over anyhow. I have to say, you chose well. The ones that you chose really are the ones where she has the most interesting roles. Everything that I watched that isn't actually something we're going to discuss for this episode, there's not much to talk about. <laughs> so we picked the right ones. <laughs> yeah, but can you imagine? I mean, it's wild to see an actress who was so well received in her in these roles, and then conceivably no one could come up with anything else for her. Yeah. Susie Wong and Flower Drum Song are problematic films, but they're great starts and would have been a great stepping stone to have more films about Asian Americans that deal with these issues more subtly and with more finesse. But it just didn't happen. After these two films, white America's interest in Chinese culture apparently was gone and so Nancy Kwan had a tough time finding interesting roles. And of course, nobody could figure out a way to actually buy into the message of Flower Drum Song of the idea of Asian Americans are Americans too. <laughs> so nobody could come up with a role for her that was just about being a human. 
and also she happens to be Asian. We, there are a couple of them that we'll get to, but they're very minor roles considering what could have been. Yeah. The next movie that she did after Flower Drum Song was so hard to find that we had to buy a bootleg DVD off of eBay. <laughs> <laughs> Because this movie is not available anywhere. Pat Boone and the Christian Wright, I think, suppress this movie. It is all at once the best and the worst film that I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I kind of love this movie, even though as far as it being a good movie, the answer is it is not a good movie. It is the main attraction, 1962. Step right up, see the main attraction. Form a line, she's a sight to see. Come up close and watch the action. First in line stands right behind me. Head to toe, she's the main attraction. Every move is a work of art. Not a man here would change a fraction. Lucky the guy who's stolen her heart. Directed by Daniel Petrie. Fresh off of Raisin in the Sun, oddly <laughs> enough. <laughs> uh, what a time. Yes, this movie has it all. It has Pat Boone. As a runaway American rebel, rebel Pat Boone, <laughs> uh, in Italy. He's even got the black leather jacket. Yep. Oh man, I want to just sing the black leather song from. Did we haven't talked about the Damned, right? The Hammer film. Oh no. With Oliver Reed, there's a song in this movie where they're standing on the corner and like the music's like black leather, black leather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's it. <laughs> and like when I look at Pat Boone in this movie, I'm just like, that's all that, that runs through my head because he's just absolutely ridiculous. But anyhow, Pat Boone, runaway American rebel is slumming it in Italy playing guitar. And he runs into a very attractive woman at the restaurant, which he's trying to play his music and gets fired because some guys try and like muscle in and be drunk and he like beats the shit out of them. <laughs> uh, and that's my Zetterling shows up as Gina and she brings him back to her trailer one night after he gets fired and Gina is a ventriloquist in a small circus and she decides to hire Boone to be a part of her act which includes basically this like really buxom dummy <laughs> that does its best <laughs> Mae West impersonation while Pat just sort of stands there and like takes the abuse <laughs> and then sings a song it's the best act I've ever seen and this circus this bizarre little circus is owned by a married couple the wife of whom has a younger sister named Tessa who's Nancy Kwan so here you have Nancy Kwan playing uh, basically I mean they don't ever explicitly say anything about her race which is kind of cool and we'll talk about that but she's playing this Italian teenager and she does horse tricks in the circus and uh, Boone and Quan they hit it off in a really normal like nice to meet you kind of way like completely chased and all hell breaks loose <laughs> <laughs> because Gina ends up becoming this drunk, jealous mess, and she pulls a 12-inch knife on Boone, who ends up in this scuffle with her, and then her ex-husband works in the circus, and he, of course, walks in on this. Bozo. Her ex-husband, Bozo, he runs in on this and then, like, struggles with Boone, and then he falls on the knife, and Boone thinks this guy is dead, so he decides, like, all right, I'm running out, I'm leaving the circus, I'm getting on this bus. And then, meanwhile... Quan's brother-in-law decides that he's in love with her, the sister of his wife, who is a teenager, 
And he basically tries to rape her. He forces himself onto her. And then the sister, of course, stumbles onto the scene. And I'm pretty sure this happens in the middle of the ring of the circus one night too, right? And it's after they set up this idea where, well, what could possibly happen in the ring of a circus? Like, don't be jealous. Don't be angry. And the sister stumbles onto the scene. And of course, suddenly the husband, I don't know, gains a brain cell and pulls away, which gives Nancy Kwan enough time to run the hell out of there and hop on a bus. So now independently... Quan and Boone are hanging out on this bus and realize that they've run into each other. This is their meet cute and start to develop feelings for each other when they both enjoy watching the other person sleep. <laughs> <laughs> this bus is like going up to the Alps and they see there's like a police traffic stop coming up. And so Boone freaks out because he thinks he's a wanted murderer and jumps off the bus. And then Nancy Quan follows him because she doesn't know what to do by herself she's afraid and they end up stumbling into this snowy house on a mountain it looks like someone had just been there and abandoned it because all like the food's still warm and there's like a pig out back you know it's like one of these ghost house kind of situations and they're just like oh this is cool and great and they just sit there like they just decide to play house and meanwhile in the background the government is going to like shoot a rocket into the Alps to start a contained avalanche, which is why the house was abandoned. This already very weird movie takes a real left turn in the last act. (laughs) You never see it coming. Just when you think there is nothing left to be discovered in cinema comes a film in which leather clad Pat Boone and circus performer Nancy Kwan and a sexy lady ventriloquist dummy end up in a love triangle. It's fucking amazing. It's this is not a good movie. <laughs> My Zeterling is a lot of fun though. She's all jealous and drunk, and clearly, like part of being a part of her act is you know sleeping with her. So Pat Boone is basically like it's never explicitly mentioned, but clearly he's a gigolo. He's sleeping with her to keep this job, which I think is amazing for Pat Boone who probably wasn't even aware that that's what this movie was suggesting. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We're talking, by the way, about Pat Boone, who refused to kiss women on film because he was married. Just so you know, like, this is Pat Boone. And this was his, like, attempt to keep himself relevant in the shadow of Elvis and make, like, basically an Elvis movie. But I'll tell you, I have watched all 31 Elvis movies, and they never get this horny. (laughs) (laughs) this is the weirdest horniest most g-rated okay pg-rated film that i have ever seen there's just constant double entendres and one-liners and come hither like my zetterling as you said she's an absolute genius there's so much of this weird like him he says i like things that are soft and easy and she calls him like a mongrel pup and she's like, come here, <laughs> like I'll put a chain around your neck kind of stuff. It's just like the weirdest, horniest thing I've ever seen for something that's like if they kiss, it cuts away like immediately after. And then it's like some like ruffled sheets in the background, like it never explicitly. <laughs> a lot of unmarried sex in this movie for a Pat Boone film. But my biggest problem with this movie is it's so half-assed. They hardly even tried. <laughs> I mean, you can say that about a lot of Elvis movies, too, but it was really just because this was so weird, it felt even more incompetent than your typical Elvis movie. 
Like it didn't seem to know what it was trying to do at any point. And I guess that's what you loved about it. I had a little trouble getting on its wavelength. I didn't know what it was trying to do. This is like my version of the type of film that you love where you're like, I just don't know what's happening and I don't know if it's serious <laughs> or not. And that's why I love it. Like this to me hit exactly that. In a way, I actually thought this was a better production than a lot of Elvis movies because it's shot on location. It takes you through a lot more. I think the pacing was actually weirdly great. You kind of really get to see these multiple parts of even the circus. You kind of go through each act. You go through a little bit about like learning how to be a circus performer. And then you get into these love triangles. There's a point where my Zetterling is talking through the ventriloquist dummy to Pat Boone about how he shouldn't have a wandering eye. And he literally says to her, like, if you want to say something to me, why don't you just say it to me? <laughs> like, you're sitting right there and you're, like, talking to me through the dummy with a weird voice. <laughs> like, there's all of this just, like, this weird stuff that happens that then it ends up in the Alps. And then it starts in the restaurant. And then they're on a bus. Like, you go through these different settings. And, like, that, to me, was actually weirdly well-paced and kept up the momentum of what is otherwise like just makes no sense there's really nothing to hold on to here nancy kwan she has such a bizarre role in this she really is almost a non-entity in a way like she's just sort of way 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 innocent where pat boone of course plays the guy who's like showing her the ways of the world which is in itself just <laughs> hilarious she has a bit more to do when she's first meeting Pat Boone, like she has this childishness that's sort of appealing, like she's saying, I like you, but I don't like you, like a lot of back and forth, sort of refusing to admit her attraction, like to his face. That's that's kind of fun. And her chief personality trait is that she is willing to be really brave in the circus and do this act where she could get trampled by a horse. Otherwise, she really doesn't have much of a personality at all in this movie, especially as it progresses. Like, once it gets past the flirty stages, she's just the romantic lead in this movie and, and nothing else. At least you feel for her enough. I mean, like, once her sister realizes that the husband is coveting her, the sister has a whole speech about how she wishes that Nancy Kwan would die so the husband won't leave her, but then she feels terrible about that. So there's this weird, like, you feel for why Nancy Kwan runs away. But why she falls for Pat Boone, I don't understand. And then he's a real dickhead to her. <laughs> he's like just really awful. And he's such a corny. I mean, like he's the worst lead because he sits there and says things like how he's like a troubled dar. <laughs> he's like, I can always feel trouble. It's followed me my whole life. <laughs> and uh, they go through this little game where she's like, you know, I don't love you. I don't love you. I could even kiss you and I wouldn't feel anything. And then they kiss and she's like, I didn't mean it. And then they have this bizarre like she basically sleeps with him. And they don't also again, of course, they don't explicitly show that. But in the morning, he, he basically loves her and leaves her like don't make me feel sorry about us <laughs> and then there's this like overdubbed as his back's turn like last night shouldn't have happened apparently pat boone the actor thought that this was just about making out and like that was enough but the way that it was cut together he was horrified to find out i think that this happened and also as you said like tried to get the movie suppressed because he was really embarrassed by it, even though he like, clearly was trying to strike out and do something different. 
that seems to be the reason why this is so impossible to find. Though it has played apparently in movie theaters. I saw that the New Beverly Theater played it not too long ago. I saw that too, along with a much better Nancy Kwan movie. I forget which one. Yeah, it's a movie. And in the middle of all this really weird, dark sexual perversion, Pat Boone's got these goofy, family-friendly songs that he sings. (laughs) He's got that fake Italian love song that keeps coming back, but then he's also got these, like, total singing these songs for the kiddies type songs that he performs (laughs) at the circus, and it's so weird. (laughs) Because this movie is impossible to find, I'm going to go ahead and spoil the best part, which is the last line. It basically turns out that the guy he thought he killed isn't even dead. (laughs) (laughs) and then he's like he literally says like quote i've been running away from nothing all my life i've been running away from nothing (laughs) and like that's it like that's the big reveal and then he realizes like i don't know what the hell he realizes and like that's it end movie five-star film really made me think (laughs) but to think about again from where nancy kwan was with Susie wong and flower drum song to going directly into this Gee whiz. Clearly, they thought that she could play non-Asian roles, which is cool. Like, I guess I have to give the movie credit for that. I mean, she's still her accent. She's you can hear her Chinese accent playing this Italian woman. So it's a little strange. Maybe that's one of the many reasons this movie was not especially beloved, because they couldn't buy her in a non-Chinese role. But at least they tried. Well, we'll see as we go through that she kind of goes back and forth where they you know, are like, okay, we, we need to find an Asian role for Nancy. Oh, that didn't work out. Let's try her in a non-Asian role. And it just kind of flips back and forth. Well, I think we have to think about what it is that makes for an Asian role. Like there's nothing about this role in this movie that's inherently Caucasian, right? And even then, she's already mixed race. I mean, it's clear that she took this role because there was zero emphasis on race. And in that way, I, I understand why. And Pat Boone was he's well known. So it's not like a terrible choice. But I mean, the quality of the film is really crummy in comparison. But yeah, I mean, it makes you realize it's like not so much that there weren't roles as much as people just could not imagine the concept of anyone who has an accent or was Asian doing anything other than your stereotypical Chinese kind of role. Her next role, actually one of her better roles, to be honest, is not a very good movie, but she gets a chance to shine, is Tamahine from 1963, British film. by Philip Leacock. She plays a half Tahitian woman grown up on the South Pacific Island. Her white British father dies, but because she's his sole child that was born within wedlock, he'd actually married her Tahitian mother. She inherits whatever British upbringing that being the daughter of this British dude allows. And so she gets on a boat and heads to Paris first, for some reason, to hang out with some old fling of her father's, but then ends up in England 
at this very British boys' school. The cousin of her father is the headmaster. You know, they were, these two cousins were, you know, very close when they were younger and both liked to mess around with women a lot and like, you know, would have a good time in Paris. But they sort of went their separate ways. Her father's cousin that she's staying with, Charles Poole, played by Dennis Price, is very conservative and proper and has put his mischievous past behind him. Very different than the uh, libertine lifestyle that her father continued to enjoy. But she finds herself at this boys' school. The boys are all repressed. I mean, just the fact that there's this young woman at the school gets them all excited. I mean, she's not taking classes, but she's there, like, standing next to the headmaster, and they don't know what to do with themselves because sex is basically forbidden in this school. You can't think about it. You can't act on your natural impulses at all. It's England. Because <laughs> that's the British way, the British public school way. But Tamahin just does not understand how people can be this way. Living on a Pacific island all her life where uh, everybody is open and natural and celebrating love and sex all the time. She just can't understand why things are so repressive in England and uh, sort of uses her free spiritedness to break open the school, to change things, to break down this repressive spirit that's making everybody apparently miserable at this school. She wants to destroy the very fabric of British society. Yeah, which is great. It's a lot of fun watching Nancy Kwan in this role. The son of the headmaster, played by John Fraser, who's the creep who wants to make it with Catherine Deneuve in Repulsion. He's got a big crush on her. And, and James Fox in an early role is in this movie. And, and he's another student. And, uh, you know, she just she likes hanging out with the boys and doing boy things. She doesn't think about what the place of a woman should be in the society. She just is a free spirit and sporty, climbs up towers and helps the boys commit pranks and just opens the eyes of everybody at the school. The art teacher who's been dating the daughter of the headmaster is the one, like, he's clearly the most bothered by this repressive atmosphere at this school. He's, like, constantly begging the headmaster for nude models for his students which is shocking to everyone. And, and he's kind of looked down on by everybody because he's clearly the, an artistic type, quote unquote, in this school that doesn't accept any kind of interest in those sorts of things. You know, it's a fish out of water story, a pretty basic one with a lot of lame British humor. But Nancy Kwan is a lot of fun and it's enjoyable to watch her shock everyone in England. But uh, the movie's just too damn British for me. I didn't think it could get more British after Mouse on the Moon, but here we are. <laughs> Tamaheen. This was a very weird movie. <laughs> it was the type of thing where you're like, I'm sure this was super racy for 1963 middle-aged British people, but for anyone else, it's really corny. Uh, it really relies heavily on this idea of like exotic, wild girls it's the manic pixie dream girl but like throw in a, a whole level of racist exotic expectations <laughs> but i mean you know i guess to, the the most generous interpretation of this is the fact that it is kind of cool to see this girl stomping on british society and every taboo and looking beautiful while she does it you know like we haven't really talked about nancy kwan 
being objectively beautiful, which <laughs> I mean, is also, of course, a big part of her charm and, and why she ended up being a star. Maybe arguably the fact that she was mixed race and had those like slightly more Western features maybe helped, I would guess, just because of white audiences having expectations of their own standards of beauty in that. But this whole movie, it really leans so heavily on the fact that she's just really beautiful and it doesn't give her too much else because otherwise she's just like manic pixie stereotype. Like she really doesn't get much of a chance to do anything other than to be like, oh, what do you mean I should be wearing clothing while I'm standing in front of a window? <laughs> you know, it's like stuff like that. It's like just every little basic thing. She has just zero sense of what modesty means. And from the life that we saw of her on the island, it doesn't even really check out because her island life was very much like we're wearing bikinis. And then she thinks that she can do that in England where it's very cold <laughs> or less. She even, you know, there's that scene mm -hmm. where she takes all of her clothing off in front of the art teacher who gets really flustered and, and terrified. And, and right when John Fraser walks in looking like Jude Law in this movie in a really weird way, he just has that kind of snotty bleach blonde boarding school british student look <laughs> and then there's that whole bizarre thing where like they're technically cousins but he has to literally go into a book of ethics and like point out the fact that legally they can still get married because their cousins once removed and she says in my culture cousins cannot be doing this and like he has to explain to her it's just there's a lot of that and there's a lot of that with a lot of really boring British people. <laughs> it's not a fun movie. It's not even that these guys are like uptight and enjoyable. They're not self-awarely uptight, more so than the idea that they're just more uptight than Tamahine, but it's not fun to watch. I think it's fun whenever she's on the screen, but whenever she's not, it's dull. It plays itself off as a really racy movie, but from a modern perspective, it feels so innocent. And I actually think that that's part of what makes this such a great role for Nancy Kwan. She does that really well, like this both innocent and seductive at the same time. That's the sort of role that she got famous for. And I mean, I guess Linda Lowe is not so innocent, but she manages to make Susie Wong still kind of innocent and seductive. And I think that's the Nancy Kwan thing. No, it's a, it's a stereotype, though. That's such a classic Asian stereotype in cinema. Which is why I, you can't call it a Nancy Kwan thing, even though I think that she definitely aided to it, especially with Susie Wong. But it's such a repeated idea. You know, I think her charm really is in her charm. I think she actually plays the innocent much stronger than she plays the seductress. And that's, I guess, part of why Tamahine is good, though, because it plays into her innocence more than it plays into her knowingly being anything racy, but... It's dismissive of Quan to say that that's what she plays best. I think that's just all she was really offered. Well, when she was offered roles where she got to do that, she shines in them and doesn't in other roles. It's sort of stray from that pattern. That may just be playing into a stereotype, but it works for her personality type, I think. But you're right. I do think that she's better at the innocent than at the seductive. She's not trying to be seductive in this movie at all. She's just free-spirited and sporty. Oh, God, that ending. The rest is just like, oh, what's the big deal? Yeah, I mean, like, you could almost, in a weird way, you could make a case for this being a sort of female fantasy film, but it's it's really blandly boring. 
it also it buys too often into its own male gaze like there's all these little kids running around taking photos of her in her underwear and then selling it to each other and that's meant to be like a fun joke that happens throughout this and it's just definitely the creepiest part of this movie but I do like in the end, of course, this movie has to end with sports day because it, it couldn't just be like the most boring film I've ever seen. It has to dip into like the worst <laughs> type of film, which at least it doesn't end with a football game, but it ends with this track race where she ends up, you know, being the fastest runner in the entire school and, uh, you know, wins the race, then has to deal with the whole it's cool for cousins to marry speech. <laughs> <laughs> There is also the the fact that the John Fraser's father, after a certain point, she's like in a boat and the father tries to save her, even though she doesn't need to be saved and she ends up saving him. And then he's like, tries to hit on her, knowing full well his son's trying to marry her. So there's a lot of like that. It's hard to be positive about this movie on top of the stereotypes, but also the fact that the movie, I I don't think this movie's heart is in the right place. (laughs) I think maybe it's hard is in the right place, but it covers it up with a lot of boys will be boys type smuttiness that is really unappealing. But anyway, after Tamahine, she did Honeymoon Hotel, which is a sort of Rock Hudson, Doris Day type sex comedy, not starring either of those people. Robert Goulet is actually in the Rock Hudson role as this suave, handsome guy that all the ladies love. And he's a real ladies man, but he's a jerk who... Meets Nancy Kwan and decides to be a better person because she's a nice girl and deserves a nice guy. Robert Morris is in there playing the Tony Randall, Jerry Lewis. Like he's playing, he's playing himself. He's Robert Morris. Yeah, there does seem to be this sort of comedy tradition where you've got the handsome lady killer, the Bing Crosby, the Dean Martin, the Rock Hudson, and then you've got his sort of comic, effeminate buddy who is not gay but is coded gay in a lot of ways the bob hope the jerry lewis the robert morris in this film actually i'm kind of a sucker for this rock hudson doris day type film so i found this fairly enjoyable but it's dumb it's there's not much to it mostly what was interesting was that i feel like a lot of plot points for the Kristen wig movie barb and star go to vista del mar were stolen from this movie that nobody's ever heard of and i think that's why they felt free to steal from it Ooh. um so i think i enjoyed uh, watching it for that reason i love that we're just dropping like huge mm. cinematic bombs in the middle of a nancy kwan episode about barb and star <laughs> you're next Kristen wig we're coming after you <laughs> watch honeymoon hotel and tell me i'm not right but i mean nancy kwan is just playing the love interest in this she's not particularly interesting her race is not an issue at all, but they're at this honeymoon hotel in on some island that because they start off in New York, it would make more sense that they were going to the Caribbean, but there are also like this Pacific Island vibes to it that I think they're sort of playing into like, oh, we've got Nancy Kwan as this tourism board person. So let's maybe it should be Polynesian and not Caribbean. Race does not come into this movie at all, but I feel like they sort of suggest that, oh, Let's sort of explain why we have Nancy Kwan here. But yeah, pretty forgettable, but enjoyable enough. Also in 1964, she made Fate is the Hunter, which is a plane crash movie. Not really a disaster film. It's more of an investigation. Rod Taylor plays this pilot who ends up crashing this plane, killing 
52 of the 53 passengers, Suzanne Plachette, one of the flight attendants, is the only survivor. And, and Glenn Ford has to prove that his old friend Rod Taylor was not the reason this plane crashed, that he wasn't drunk. And he talks to his girlfriend at the time, played by Nancy Kwan, playing Sally Fraser. It does come up that she is of Chinese origin. The other characters refer to her as his Chinese girlfriend, but she's got this Anglo name, and there, there's some explanation. She was adopted or, or something. I feel like the role was probably not written for an Asian American, but they sort of wrote it into this a little bit. But she also sort of plays a some kind of biologist. She loves fish, an ichthyologist, I think. Um, but she also introduces this idea, this sort of Eastern philosophical idea to Glenn Ford that it was just fate that killed all those passengers that made the plane crash. So I guess her Easternness does play a little bit of a role in this movie. She's memorable in her one section that she's in, but after that, the characters kind of drop. So she plays an important role, but is not a major part of the movie. It's actually a fairly decent movie, worth watching, but don't watch it for Nancy Kwan necessarily. Not that she's bad, she's fine. After that, she did a movie called The Wild Affair back in Britain. Why don't you tell us about that one? Yeah, The Wild Affair, 1965. This is directed by John Krish. kind of really like this movie in a weird way. I wouldn't say it's the best movie, but it's it's really interesting and I thought it was pretty interesting for Nancy Kwan. One thing of note and this is also again going into how she clearly was trying to I think in some ways get away from stereotypes and get away from the prison within Hollywood of not being white, right? Because if all of the white stars had roles that were being written for them when they hit it big. And if, you know, you didn't have a role being written for you, you were kind of shit out of luck, basically. And one of the things that happened with The Wild Affair, and I think part of how she ended up on this, is that one of the producers for The Wild Affair told Ray Stark, who you mentioned earlier, was a man who discovered Nancy Kwan. They said, quote, you can't get away with this. She's Chinese. And Stark's reply to that was, that's your trouble. You continue to believe she's Chinese. I think that's kind of interesting because on one hand, what is in right now is, is the idea of really embracing your heritage and embracing who you are and then showing your specific slice of life. And yet what was really radical for the 60s as far as casting goes was this idea of almost transcending your race in order to just get a role which is essentially at its core conforming right it's whitewashing yourself to saying like i can be you but you know if you don't do that you don't work so it's like this weird you know as i said prison of how do you get move yourself ahead and how do you continue your career doing the thing that you love and getting paid to do that and in a way she kind of managed to try and work that mixed race angle to getting these different roles that she otherwise just would not have gotten if she had only continued to walk down the line of roles that are for Chinese Americans. 
So it's something that's, I think, kind of easy to misconstrue with a modern sensibility because we want to embrace diversity. We don't want to pretend that we like don't see race or whatever. But considering the fact that white leads had been and still are cast as various ethnicities at any whim, think about how radical like Hamilton felt when it debuted, right? Like the impact of the actors' races to the heart of the story being told was really interesting. That was a really interesting dynamic. And it both doesn't matter and it also super matters in positive ways. So, you know, in that sense, like I think The Wild Affair is is an interesting movie for her to have chosen because this is this movie about Marjorie Lee is her name, who's Nancy Kwan, and she's about to get married. It's the last day of her job working for this office, which is a fashion magazine. And she is a secretary, and it's also the day of the Christmas party. So kind of this movie ends up taking you through a day in the life in a lot of ways, and also just sort of seeing her interactions with her coworkers. And it really leans heavily on just the fact that working in an office when you're a woman in the 60s was like a goddamn nightmare. <laughs> because it's just full of all of these really creepy male bosses and coworkers just constantly, constantly hitting on her. But the sort of fun part of this is that Nancy has this alter ego who she calls Sandra inside of her. And so whenever she looks in the mirror, Sandra's telling her that she's entitled to go a little bit wild. And that essentially, you know, the movie opens with her husband to be recovering from his bachelor party And so she sort of is telling herself, you know, like, I also deserve a last fling. You know, I deserve my own. I think in in England, they call it a hen do. You know, she wants to go and strike out and have a party, her last hurrah before her big wedding and and settling down and all of that. And, And, you know, it's also like this ending of her freedom of having a job, even though it's this sort of narrow role for her as a woman in the office place in the 60s. So, yeah, it's this weird movie that kind of builds in stress and anxiety as the movie goes on in a way that I found really interesting to watch. And I also have to point out the fact that this is another time where Nancy Kwan was setting trends because she got a Vidal Sassoon haircut, that classic Sassoon haircut, which immediately like again put her in headlines with Vogue and became the Nancy Kwan cut and helped really propel Vidal Sassoon's career into the stratosphere for that. So that's kind of cool. I didn't realize this movie had any impact at all. I thought she was just another girl with that Vidal Sassoon cut in Swinging London. This was the beginning. Okay. Vidal Sassoon, ground zero. So you don't like this movie, though, and I want to know why. Well, it's I mean, it's another movie that's just too British. It's too interested in winking smuttiness and these bland British characters just constantly macking on women and just thinking it's their right to sleep with whoever they want to sleep with and say whatever they want to say to any woman. And it's just not funny, really, is my biggest problem with it. I like the setting for it. Like, it's very clearly invested in this whole swinging London thing, and it's examining where a young woman falls in this new thing that's happening in the world in England. Can you still be a nice girl, but also be a hip-swinging Londoner. And that's the whole Marjorie versus Sandra thing in this movie, her personality crisis. She's just a really nice virgin. And she feels like, you know, 1965, 
there are fewer and fewer girls like me. I should branch out. I should, <laughs> I should do what the other kids are doing and get some sexual experience here. And I think it's kind of an interesting setup for a film, but then it just gets so caught up in all these gross men, you know, this huge drunken party where everybody's hooking up. That party gave me anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> but I do want to give a shout out really quickly to Victor Spinetti, our buddy, who is definitely the funniest part of this movie, I thought. He's like this bizarre makeup artist. And he's like sitting there talking like, the next look is <laughs> like, what, what did he call it? Like the vampire or something? Yeah. The... It's like, it's the look of the undead. Like moonlight shining on a coffin. Lips out. Eyebrows alarmed. Eyes haunted. <laughs> the vampire look. <laughs> Which, of course, ends up being exactly Sandra's look whenever Quan looks in the mirror. But yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think there's something very British in this in that it sort of just shows you the horrors and it just lets you drink them all in. It never gives you any reprieve, even with comedy, for just how terrible all of these men are to her constantly. And that, in its own way, I think actually is a little more self-aware than, say, like Tamahine was, because Tamahine is more like winkingly ha-ha funny. And when these guys are really harassing her, there's nothing that's funny about what they're saying. The funny aspect of this is just how awkward it is and how, like, creepy it is. And her trying to get out of the situation. Yeah, it's her trying to leave, which is not like ha-ha funny, but it's recognizably like gallows humor kind of funny. But the movie's a bit prudish, and it's, again, there's nothing feminist about this. There's really, for most of the movies I've seen for Nancy Kwan, she's never really trying to challenge the status quo for femininity, uh, which, you know, it is what it is. Uh, You can't be everything to everyone. But there is an interesting part of that in this, though, in that you get this interesting mix of, of girls in the office. So you have like the older secretary who has a crush on the boss, but never acted on it. And then you have the younger secretary who's like hungry to ladder climb and will do anything, including posing naked and just openly flirting with all these guys all the time. But both of these women are miserable. And Nancy Kwan's sort of the middle girl who's trying to walk the line between the two and also not become the older spinster. You know, no one's ever shown as being a model of how to act. And so I think that sort of indecisiveness, I thought, was an interesting thing to portray on screen. Because she's better off, like, in the end, she's better off leaving and being with her husband. (laughs) Which isn't an exciting ending, but it's sort of a relief based on just all the awful things that she's surrounded with in this office. And the awful uncertainty of not knowing what you're going to be doing with your life versus settling down and getting married, whatever. So in a way, I kind of like that. It's like this movie kind of turns her into like Dante going through the inferno, especially when the party starts to really get started. Because part of this is that, you know, she's leaving. It's her last day and her creepy boss pulls her into the office and says, nobody else is going to get a bonus or they're only getting half their bonus. But I'm going to give you your full bonus because you're just so wonderful. And also you're leaving. And he's sort of like trying to get in one last touch, which he does. He's sitting there creepily putting his hands all over her neck and her shoulders And then this other guy comes in and tries to take her out and flirts with her. And she sort of has this moment of like, screw it. This is my last chance to be wined and dined by another man. And she takes it. And that guy's just as creepy and horrible. But, you know, so she takes all of the money that she has from her bonus and she goes to a liquor store and she just goes like hog wild. She starts just picking out anything and she picks out wine the way that I pick out wine, which is that looks pretty. And... (laughs) Oh, that has a giraffe on it. Great. You know, I'm going to buy that one. So she just starts 
grabbing completely random mix of alcohol and wine and liquor and all that and and then brings it back to the party which just immediately gets out of hand <laughs> it immediately goes from like a fun office like you know end of year everyone's disappointed to then suddenly everyone's drinking all their terrors away and then everyone's just hooking up like random the fire alarms go off it becomes this like anxiety dream of a party i'm gonna put you on the spot here what did you think about casting a eurasian in the role of a very anglo marjorie lee i didn't really find that much about her to be very anglo specifically the thing that i think kind of sucks is the fact that they don't address that as a Eurasian, she probably would have had even more shit to deal with. So they kind of gloss over that aspect of her, which, you know, of course, is glossing over an aspect of the truth. And in a way, just to display her as only a woman, you know, you're leaving out part of the story and you're you're leaving out a key way that they could have gone through a lot of like casual racism. They could have gone through a lot of things that would have really played into what they were working towards, but they don't mention it. So, you know, again, in a way, it's interesting to see her in this role because I think it's probably refreshing for her to not have to be hyper-conscious of her race all the time. And she deserved to have a role that wasn't just about playing the typical virgin horror in one exotic other. So I thought this was a cool role for her to have, but also, I guess, in a way, a missed opportunity. Right at the beginning, I was already disappointed in the movie when I found out, like, you meet her mother right away, who's this very typical white British woman. And I thought, oh, this is great. Her dad is Chinese, and we're going to have this whole issue that's going to be addressed. But then you very briefly meet her dad, who is also this, like, very white Anglo dude. I mean, part of that is what I brought into the film, knowing I'm watching this for Nancy Kwan. But it's also, I mean... Her features are not so obviously Asian that she can't play a white British woman. I mean, she she looks like Natalie Wood or something. Not knowing who Nancy Kwan is, seeing her in a role like this, you might think, oh, there's just your typical white British Anglo girl playing this role. You, you might not think about it too much. But knowing that she's Nancy Kwan, hearing her... Her accent slips through a bit. She drops her consonants at times. It was always kind of present in my mind that here's a Eurasian woman playing a white Anglo girl. I thought she did a great job in this film. Like, she was well cast. She was perfectly within her acting abilities to do a good job with this role. But it was basically this little bit of an accent slipping through. And the fact that I know she's Nancy Kwan that kept me thinking... It was sort of an odd choice to cast a Eurasian in this role. I guess for me, like, I, I just think about all the movies I've watched that have British actors playing American <laughs> or Americans playing British, and the accents are just so god-awful that I sort of accepted to some degree to ignore it. So, like, it didn't really bug me watching this. I was sort of very happy to accept her. And I think it's also maybe just on the basis of the fact that she's mixed race, it's sort of easy to imagine her as one way or the other, especially if I don't know who she is. But it really didn't bug me at all. It really didn't stand out as something that meant anything. But I actually think that in a way maybe is more of like an American tendency that I don't take accents as a signifier of not being an American which I think is a lot harder in other countries that put more emphasis on that kind of stuff. Like 
to have an American show up in England, it becomes a lot clearer, whereas vice versa, you can kind of conceivably accept it the other way around. But I don't know. It didn't bother me. Well, after The Wild Affair, she got grabbed by Disney to make one of their mediocre live-action films of the 60s, <laughs> Lieutenant Robin Crusoe, USN. A classic, a Disney classic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dick Van Dyke was at the peak of his popularity in 1966, and I actually think this movie made money, but it's terrible, and not a small part of that is the racial stereotypes in this film are really, really off-putting. It's basically a modern version of the Robinson Crusoe story. Dick Van Dyke ends up on this island and first takes a space chimp as his friend. This, this chimp has been living on the island uh, after his capsule has crashed in the ocean. Then shortly after that meets his man Friday, which is Nancy Kwan, and he names her Wednesday. She's an island girl who has run away from her cruel father who's making her marry someone that she doesn't want to marry. So this is her playing the South Pacific Islander again. This movie gives the impression that it's sort of feminist in the slightest way because it's talking about like she and her other, the other females from the nearby island want to sort of fight against this patriarchal system where Akim Tamaroff is Tanamashu, the chief of the tribe who is really the grossest stereotype in the film is not letting them be free, not letting them do whatever they want. It's sort of a, you know, this idea that it's it's about women's rights, but really it's just another Disney attempt to preserve the status quo. It's terrible. It has to be possibly the lowest point of all Disney productions. I, I would say avoid this one. Nancy Kwan isn't even really, she's fine. She has a little bit of fun, but it's not worth talking about this film. Nothing makes me want to watch a movie more than when you say <laughs> something like that. Also in 1966, she made Arrivederci Baby, which is a Tony Curtis film where he's sort of a bluebeard type where he marries women for their money and kills them. But this is a, a hilarious comedy. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, I mean, it's got some clever bits. Ken Hughes directed it, who I don't even, like I know he had a big hand in Casino Royale. You know, he doesn't have an awful reputation as a director, and he wrote this film. So, you know, he can take credit for the funny parts that are in it, but it's definitely not great. You know, it's supposed to be a lot of gallows humor, like you're supposed to think it's funny when Tony Curtis is killing his various wives. Nancy Kwan plays Baby, the girl that he's actually in love with but won't marry. She keeps begging him to marry her, and she sort of, finds out that he's about to marry Rosanna Schifino, this heiress, this beautiful young Italian heiress, and gets upset. It's a lot of nonsense, and she's got a particularly thankless role. Race is not addressed in any way in it, though, so she could be played by anybody. She doesn't have enough of a role for it to matter in any way. She just has to be a sexy woman, and <laughs> she succeeds, but there's nothing more to say about that one either. And finally, one more before we get back to a movie that we're actually going to discuss a bit. In 1967, she did The Corrupt Ones, which is actually a West German production. It's just this treasure hunt movie starring Robert Stack as your, like, Indiana Jones-type treasure hunter. I guess I mean, he's a photographer who stumbles on this medallion that leads to some kind of treasure in China, and the bad guys in this are the red Chinese soldiers. Nancy Kwan is Tina, who's like this Bond-type supervillain in her real, I guess her first Dragon Lady role. 
So she does, I think towards the end of the 60s, she really did start to accept this role popularized by Anna Mae Wong, as you were saying, this immoral Asian woman who uh, is capable of all sorts of villainous acts. And she's after the treasure too, and she tortures people with acid in order to get the treasure. And Elka Summers in this is the good girl, is the one that you want Robert Stack to get with. But it, it's, you know, another terrible adventure movie. I, may, I mean, maybe if you are an adventure movie fan, you could get some enjoyment out of this, but the production values are pretty low, and I had very little patience for it. But after this, in 1968, she made a film for Universal called Nobody's Perfect. <laughs> She plays a nurse in the Navy who is stationed in Japan, although I'm kind of making her sound like the main character, which she definitely is not. It's an interesting role, but she, the main character in this is actually Doug McClure, who everybody knew from The Virginian, was on there for years. Modern audiences would know him better as the basis for Troy McClure, the Phil Hartman character on The Simpsons. But he's this naval doctor who likes to make trouble, and he you know, starts to go up in the ranks and then, you know, loses his stripes for causing trouble. I mean, a lot of this movie is just watching Willoughby, Doug McClure's character, cause trouble and then try and get away with it, come up with these various schemes to get whatever he wants. This movie is very much based in, isn't it fun to be in the Navy? Like, it's a lot of military hijinks, but clearly written, directed by people who know the Navy intimately, this was based on a novel by Alan Bosworth, who was in the Navy. And so much of this movie, what makes it more than just completely forgettable TV-style entertainment is that there is so much concentration on the fine points of being in the Navy. And it's a little bit interesting for that reason. I mean, the, the laughs are not very funny. It's also a really strange plot. Like, it almost rivals the main attraction for the weirdest plot in, in any of the movies we watch. So, you know, early on in his naval career, Willoughby and three of his drunk Navy buddies steal this statue from a burned down temple in Japan. They're going to bring it back to America as a souvenir, but they realize that it would get confiscated. So they hide it in this cave in another part of Japan. So part of the plot is him retrieving the statue. At this point, he's met Tommy, Nancy Kwan, who is a Japanese-American who doesn't speak any Japanese. So some of the humor comes from her being you know, mistaken for a Japanese person and her speaking like fake Japanese. And that also is based on a lot of gross Asian stereotypes, like having her say things like rocks of rock and, and things like that. But yeah, the more interesting plot in this film is sort of her story where she meets the guy that she has been promised to by her family, this Japanese guy, and she knew nothing about it. Interestingly, played by James Shigeta, who's one of her love interests in Flower Drum Song, but they're sort of playing opposite roles in this one. But yeah, Doug McClure meets her, falls in love, and they have you know sort of a nice romance. I actually think that Nancy Kwan is really natural in this movie, and you sort of get an idea of what she probably is really like. She has a 
you know, a, a light touch and is a pleasant personality. This is a bad movie, but I liked watching her in it because it, it felt like the one movie where I'm actually kind of seeing the real Nancy Kwan a little bit. But Willoughby tries to get this statue back to this Japanese village, which is where Nancy Kwan has to go to talk to the father of this guy who says that she's been promised to marry him. And so there's this sort of competition between Toshi, this guy, and, uh, and Willoughby. Toshi is a salvage diver, and when the statue of the Smiling Buddha falls in the ocean, he agrees to go get it, and there's a typhoon, and it's a very strange plot that also feels like it must be based somewhat on real-life incidents, because I don't know how anyone would put these diverse pieces of plot together and think they had a movie, but <laughs> sort of interesting for that reason. I don't have much to say about this movie, directed by one of Don Knotts's favorite movie directors. I think that's mostly what he's known for. Alan Rafkin, he did a lot of TV and Don Knotts movies. Yeah, I'm with you. This is one of those movies where I'm like, I'm trying to figure out if the good outweighs the bad or not. Because on one hand, I agree. For me, all of the dumb Navy antics were just so boring. <laughs> and just dumb. I mean, it's just like nonstop, like brawls and bars, picking fights with army guys, you know, whatever. They release cockroaches on the ship just to be dickish. A fellow crew member sets up his other crew member to get his like pubes shaved off because they're all working for like the hospital <laughs> aspect of this. Wait, I think I missed that part. When do pubes get shaved off? <laughs> when he locks his friend. Uh, I don't see. I all these. That's the other problem with this movie is all of the white guys are so interchangeable. I literally could not tell them apart. Boats is his buddy, the tall one. Purdy is the lieutenant who is hateable. At one point, Lieutenant Purdy, who is like the bad guy in this film, he's the Weasley lieutenant who's trying to please the commanding officer, played by James Whitmore, and he's always trying to get Willoughby in trouble. So when he gets strapped to a table in a, in a hospital. See, I thought he was drugged and raped by the nurse. What? And we're supposed to think that's funny. No. <laughs> he, uh, he tells the nurse... And she's like this big, tall nurse. He says, strap the guy to the table and prep him for surgery. But he specifies a type of like lower abdominal surgery where I my understanding was that, you know, you have to shave his his body <laughs> in order to prep him. And then she won't let him leave because the doctor said, keep him there. He said, oh, he's, he's nervous. So just whatever he says, just keep him strapped there. So he ends up strapped there for like 24 hours. But he's like in this sort of, drug-induced smiley state where you think something sexual has happened between him and this nurse who's who strapped him down and she like turns and gives him a sexy look and i no <laughs> seemed like something a lot a lot dirtier than just pube shaving but you could be right well i think that's even too much for this crummy movie <laughs> but the thing that really horrified me in this film i thought which was bad enough was the fact that they stole that buddha statue from a village it's just like everyone's sitting there talking about this is like the most sacred thing and the village has never been the same since and it's like what is wrong with you <laughs> but yeah so i mean there's like all of this doug mcclure doing dumb shit parts of this movie that i just couldn't care about and i don't understand why they didn't focus just in general on nancy kwan's story i found it much more interesting and much more engaging because now you have this story about a very japanese american nurse who is being kind of confronted by her heritage and doesn't recognize it. And I thought that was a really interesting story to tell. And I would guess that that's why Nancy t 
took this role because of the sort of other way of looking at Asian Americans or whatever. Like beyond dealing with the idea that she's in Japan, she gets annoyed that people mistake her as Japanese instead of American, which I thought was like probably, you know, a more natural response. Like it's always interesting to hear interviews from Asian Americans going back to whatever country their families are from and just feeling totally out of place because, you know, you're surrounded by people now where you blend in, but you, you don't understand what they're saying sometimes or that sort of response where there's just as much sort of otherness as you might have experienced within the U.S. So I thought that was kind of a, a cool topic to touch upon. But there's also like this aspect of where she finally gains a little bit of like feminist energy where she kind of talks about like part of what she doesn't like about James Shigeta is that he is coming from this more traditional Japanese role, I guess. And where she's sitting there arguing with him about fighting those stereotypes of what a woman should be in Japan versus what a woman should be in America. Then she gets angry about it. And she's sort of kind of going off to McClure about it on the beach. There's this one scene where she starts arguing because she's like, the women here, they behave like pieces of furniture and men don't want women to be people. They just want them to be slaves. And his response, of course, is to be like, a woman's place is in the home, which only makes her angrier. <laughs> and then he sort of reveals like, oh, I'm just joshing you. Like, don't, don't you feel better now? And she's like, oh, wow, you're so right. So it like doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't really get there in the end. But it is sort of interesting, at least. But of course, they're attacking Japan. They're attacking Japanese women and not American women. So that's also like a, a limitation. But it was interesting. I thought there was an interesting aspect to that. Uh, one thing I thought was a little bit funny was that you have playing her Japanese uncle is Key Luke, speaking in Japanese with a very clear like American accent. <laughs> but Key Luke, I bring up just because he's most well known as Charlie Chan. Talk about Yellowface, the number one son of Charlie Chan, you know, and so he, he continued in his acting role. I thought that was kind of interesting to see him in this bit role. But yeah, I don't know. I'm with you. This is a weird movie and it just felt like, you know, again, talking about movies as a business, they focus so much on this white Navy aspect, which was just not worth anyone's time. <laughs> and uh, they lost the more interesting part of the story, the more human part of the story even. So I don't know. I don't really know what to think about this one. Yeah. Once this movie becomes a sort of underwater rescue movie where Willoughby gets to prove his heroism, Nancy gets lost. She doesn't play a role anymore, but I can see Navy bros really liking this movie. Because it really gets into the nitty gritty of what being in the Navy is like. And I thought the antics were stupid, not very amusing, but it was so specific that I was a little bit interested for that reason. But yeah, this is a pretty disposable movie. And for a movie that's set in Japan, I mean, I'm sure none of it was shot. No, I mean, I bet there, there was definitely was some second unit stuff shot in Japan. I don't know if any of the actors actually were in Japan, but it doesn't love Japan the way that the world of Suzy Wong loves China, that's for sure. There's no real celebration of Japanese culture at all. You get bits of it when she's up in her uncle's village, you know, sorting out this whole marriage crisis thing and trying to return the smiling Buddha. But, uh, you know, other than that, it's way more interested in naval culture than Japanese culture. And that's 68. 60s are almost over. Nancy managed to make a couple more movies in the 60s after this. The Wrecking Crew is next, also in 68. The fourth and final Matt Helm movie, where she's third female lead after 
Sharon Tate and Elka Summer. Uh, and this is another Dragon Lady role, not too much different than her Dragon Lady role in The Corrupt Ones, also with Elka Summer. But at least she has a fight scene with Sharon Tate, like a karate scene that was choreographed by Bruce Lee. And I actually watched it again for this episode, just that one bit. And it's not that impressive. <laughs> no, I wasn't. It's, it's as unimpressive as when we watched it for the Matt Helm episode. But after having seen Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood and had a little more background on the film and knowing that Bruce Lee choreographed that fight scene, the, the fight scene is not great. Nancy Kwan comes off a little better than Sharon Tate does in the fighting. It's probably her dancer background, but not much. And her final film in the 60s was The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which is an Adam West gangster film, 1969. He's trying to break away from the whole Batman thing and is playing like this hard-boiled guy that has ties to the mob, but he's like a restaurant owner and the mob boss gets killed in his restaurant and somehow Nancy Kwan, who uh, Adam West has a romantic history with, is somehow mixed up. And does she have something to do with this murder or not? We very quickly find out she doesn't and she just spends the rest of the movie in his hotel room hiding away from the bad guys and professing her love for Adam West. The role is not tiny, but it's really thankless. Of the films that we didn't discuss for this episode, it's her largest role, but one of her least significant. Except for the fact that her being part Asian has nothing to do with the role. She's playing somebody named Rebel Drew. Maybe her somewhat Asian features add to her sort of mysteriousness, and she's cast for that reason, but they don't play up that aspect much. She's had a checkered past, but she's a good girl now. And really, she's just the hot love interest for Adam West, who's terrible in a serious role. <laughs> he's perfect as Batman and all that tongue-in-cheek stuff he's great at, but trying to take him seriously in a role is very difficult. Yeah, after the 60s, Nancy Kwan mostly got a lot of B-movie action fodder roles. What do you know about Nancy's post-60s career that would be worth mentioning here? I mean, I'd say in general, she you know, pretty openly has said now that she took any role that would just help further her career just to keep afloat after a while. And yeah, there just wasn't really much out there, unfortunately, that was being offered to her. And not that she couldn't do it, but she has some limitations, I think, as an actress. But overall, I think that her biggest limitation was just the material she was forced to work with. And by the end of the 60s, what ended up happening, uh, her father was in poor health. I believe that she had a child and married, which then eventually led to divorce. But she kind of decided that she wanted to move back to China as an adult and gain that experience and be around her family a little bit which everyone told her was career suicide, but she didn't really care at this point, I guess, and, and decided, I'm just going to do it. She ended up starting her own studio eventually. I mean, she continued to show up in movies. She continued acting through the 70s and uh, the 80s up until now. She's was in a movie, I guess, uh, 2016. She was in Painted Black. Oh, that Amber Tamblyn thriller thing. Yeah. So, you know, she's just still around. I think that she had a handful of interesting roles, but... I read that she turned down a role in the Joy Luck Club because it says something bad about the world of Susie Wong in there. There's a line of dialogue they wouldn't remove, so she refused to be in the movie. Yeah. And that it's like the one major Hollywood film in the 90s with a, an Asian-American cast, and she turned it down for that reason. 
Yeah, I think she stands apart from a lot of her contemporary actors in that she doesn't really seem to want to connect any sort of political implications with her career decisions. She really keeps them separately in her mind, which which is something that James Hong definitely doesn't agree with. There was a couple of interesting, you know, like Lisa Liu looking back at her career because she was a contemporary in, in the 60s as another Asian American voice. There's a lot of people that have since spoken out and sort of accepted, like, this is what we had to deal with, so we did it. I'm proud of my work, but I'm not always proud of what I had to do to get there as far as taking on roles that were kind of beneath them. But Nancy Kwan doesn't seem to have that attitude. You know, there was a good quote in that Hollywood Chinese documentary from David Henry Huang, who's the playwright who wrote M. Butterfly and tried to revive, did revive Flower Drum Song not too long ago. But he has an interesting quote where he said, um, quote, I think Asians who grew up in Asia aren't wrestling with identity questions as Asian Americans do. Since they grew up not in the minority, they had a sense of themselves and they, that wasn't as compromised. And B.D. Wong gets into it really specifically in, in this documentary. But I think that that's kind of a big part of this. I think that Nancy Kwan coming from growing up in Hong Kong, even though she was mixed race, I think likely had a better sense of self and was able to have that more narrow focus on, on what it is that I'm doing as a character in this movie and be less hung up on the wider implications of it. Whether or not that's correct, you know, like that's for anyone <laughs> that isn't me to say but I don't know watching these movies it is interesting to sort of see this wrestling with representation and how to get around that when you can't you literally can't get around it so while you know we at Cinema 60 are trying to operate in general on good faith to start with a lot of these movies which is arguably an extension of our whiteness anyhow <laughs> because we have this detachment to be smug intellectuals and look down and tut-tut and clap whenever we want to. I hope we're not that. We're aware it's our luxury to be able to stand back and look at these things uncritically, but hopefully we can raise some awareness. I mean, I get, that's the best we can hope to do on this show is make people think about some of these issues that we maybe don't have firsthand experience with, but we can observe them and say, yeah, they're there. Um, I mean, <laughs> Everyone is aware that 60s Hollywood, there's a whole lot there that wouldn't pass today, like you couldn't get away with in, in current movies. But I think it's our obligation to point out how, yes, there is this stuff, that there are also things of value to look at in these films, despite the political incorrectness. Right. And hopefully that gets people to think about this stuff. Like, I want to always try and use my modern perspective to inform my evaluation, but I don't want it to close myself off to information, you know, so short of something being like overtly, horrendously bad faith, evil garbage. <laughs> Lieutenant Robin Crusoe. <laughs> <laughs> of which there's plenty of that outside of a Disney Dick Van Dyke movie. I'll pretty much always give something a try just to see what is there and to see the roots of something that reverberates still today. You know, and, and, some, and to see what it did have to offer. And maybe the answer is nothing. <laughs> but I, many times I kind of find that it's interesting to see what's being presented by the creator versus how it was interpreted by the audience. But you can't remove one from the other for me. 
And in a way, it's interesting to see these sort of well-meaning liberal 1960s cinematic efforts and to see how that gets misinterpreted. And in a way, that's like a really good argument for not taking these half steps with your messages, you know, to be bold about it and to be more willing to challenge the status quo. But again, then we get back into this trap of the fact that movies are a business. You can't just sit there and expound on the morality and virtues that you hold dear the way that you can in like an essay or a book or something that is more about one person getting their vision into the world because movies inherently are not about that. They're collaborative and then propped up by tons of money by very nervous conservative people. I think that's part of why I get excited about baby steps that happen in the movies, because that's the only way that change happens in these things. Like there's so much money at stake that nobody's going to get too radical. Big messages, if they happen at all, aren't going to make a difference because you need an audience to actually receive these messages. So I can get excited about movies like Susie Wong and Flower Drum Song because of the baby steps that they're taking to make people aware and interested in Chinese culture, despite how problematic they are. Yeah, I mean, and there's something to be said for that. It's very hard to dismiss that because without having the first all Asian cast musical, you don't get to the best, <laughs> which yeah. is maybe yet to come. It, it is interesting there hasn't, you know, to, to get a truly Asian American story, I don't know. We're getting a lot more of it recently. I mean, like, I liked The Farewell. I thought it was kind of interesting, though that takes place in China for the most part. But it really does deal with, you know, an, an Asian American wrestling with Chinese traditions without being stereotypical or cheesy. And, and in part because it's based on a true story. Or even Crazy Rich Asians, I think, has some elements of that, even though that's based in Singapore. And is a little bit less about Asian American, but... It was nice to see this sort of all Asian cast on a big budget American film. So I think Parasite winning Best Picture last year is pretty significant, too. It shows that the wider American audience is interested in stories involving Koreans, Asian people. Right. Uh, have you seen Minari? No, I haven't seen Minari yet, and I really want to. Uh, the, the pandemic and it being out in theaters is blocked my chances but the fact that that is getting nominated I'm, I'm with you i think parasite was a big breakthrough even though that was a purely korean film but yeah i hope that that inspires more funding to go towards these types of films that hopefully eventually will be better representing asian american interests well i guess we can end by just thanking nancy kwan for her help thanks nancy kwan you got us <laughs> on a road of thinking about something that we haven't really been able to tackle much on this podcast yet I enjoyed watching these movies and it gave me something to think about. And you can go on the website and look up some of the other people to learn better things from about Asian American cinema. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.